This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. I'm joined by Jeremy Siegel, Warren Finance Professor and Senior Economist to Wisdom Tree. Discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products. And we're going to have a very interesting discussion with some guests on the economy and what's happening in the markets. But Professor, so much data on the tape this morning. You got all sorts of earnings. You've got the jobs report. Curious to see how you're reacting to the latest uh, string of news. Well, this was one of the strangest, if not the strangest job report that I've ever seen. Uh, obviously, the, the number in, in the increase in payrolls uh, blew away the estimates plus strong upward revisions. But at the same time, a total plunge in hours worked like I've never seen before. If you multiply the hours worked by the number of people, the actual number of hours worked declined. Um, did not increase, declined sharply. Um, in, in fact, I believe that uh, the Atlanta GDP Fed now revised down by over two percentage points on the basis of this. Uh, yeah, no one talked about it. I mean, the bond market fell apart, like how strong this is. We have only seen hours work plunge like this in recessions. Um, I have, I've gone back at least 10 years. I, I hadn't had a chance to check it all out, but this is extremely unusual behavior. Is, uh, uh, is it revisions? Uh, I, I really don't know, but the plunge in hours worked, uh, uh, is, is, is something that, that needs to be studied. Secondly, um, people are, uh, obviously, the bond market, you could say, is upset about uh, the wages running well above expectations. Um, however, we 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 have stressed in our uh, discussions over the weeks that there is a huge, important variable that separates wages from inflation. And that variable is productivity and productivity is I mean, we, we saw the first quarter productivity beat expectations. Um, productivity is remaining very strong. So wage growth in and of itself is not inflationary. Not if it's associated with an increase in productivity, which is what the data sees. So, you know, I mean, you could say the bond market was scared by two things. Uh, you know, one was the big wage increases. And secondly, was uh, the tremendous increase in number of, of bodies worked. Uh, however, on the other side, uh, the plunge in hours really offsets the increase in payroll and uh, the, the increase in productivity mutes the uh, inflationary impact, if not offsets entirely the inflationary impact of um, the higher wages. Furthermore, uh, if you looked at the household survey, I think there was a small decline. <laughs> um, uh, of course, that's a much more volatile survey uh, than the payroll survey. Um, but uh, we did not see any sort of big increase like that. Certainly the ADP that came out, um, you know, earlier uh, uh, in the week, we, we did not show that it, in fact, it was below expectations. So, I, I you know, I'm it, it's a puzzlement. All right. Now let's go to the Fed. <laughs> um, did the Fed know about this beforehand? I mean, I, I, I hear about the debate. I mean, actually. Probably not. They formulated their statement. They get to know by the afternoon the day before, and by then that statement was out. Um, but I'm not surprised at all about the statement. Um, uh, I, we've been stressing week after week after week that there's no sign of slowdown in this economy. And, uh, you know, you take a look at the, uh, the, the, I mean, even forgetting this crazy, Labor market report that, uh, you know, we got this morning. I mean, the data is, is coming in, 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 uh, relatively strong, um, on all fronts. 
Um, in fact, the GDP uh, uh, now uh, indicator of, of, of uh, uh, Federal Reserve Atlanta actually I think was up to four percent, which I think was too high. But nonetheless, the data was coming in still strong. Um, uh, we don't see inflation in the commodity market. Um, yes, there was some increase in prices and the PMIs, um, which were stronger on the whole. But you know, there, there's there's no general increase in in those pressures. And of course, we saw the long bond all the way down to. To 380. Now it's jumped on on this report, and we'll see how it settles out. Um, but uh, you know, I mean, looking uh, away from this report, but trying to explain what it is. I mean, if you look at hours work, we're heading towards a recession. If you look at the number of people working, we're heading towards an unsustained boom. Um, so, you know, looking past that, I think it continues the story we saw. Strong. What about earnings? Some disappointed. Um, you know, um, you know, Microsoft uh, and um, uh, Microsoft was fairly good. Um, uh, uh, Alphabet was maybe not as good. I mean, Meta blew it away. Amazon did well. Uh, um, on the whole, that group is very volatile up and down. Um, earnings are basically coming in all right. Um, as I say, you know, big changes. But I don't see, you know, I, I, I'm still... I'm still believe we're actually going to get above 244 for this year on uh, on S&P on S&P earnings. Um uh the bank, okay, so the Community Bank in New York, now everyone's worried about banks again. Um I'm I'm not an expert. It looks very fishy. It looks very isolated to me and uh, some some of the smart Commentary I read said it was isolated. They should have taken that hit beforehand. Why didn't they? I don't know. I mean, um, uh, uh, you know, the hit on, you know, Sternlich saying, you know, $1.2 trillion is lost in commercial real estate. Yes, it is. You know, but when you have wealth at 60 to 70 trillion, that isn't much. And uh, it's been taken in the banks. And if you take a look at the, the valuation of bank stocks and, and other holders, that's been taken um, uh, to be to be sure. So I don't I, I personally do not think this ranks as the beginning of any sort of, you know, banking crisis. Certainly got a bond market reaction when when the news came out because of uh, the memories of last March and what happened to Silicon Valley Bank. But I don't think it's anything like Silicon Valley Bank. And I don't see anything out there that, you know, is going to prompt a run on banks or or anything like that, that, uh, you know, there, there's hidden losses that uh, that we just don't see. It's interesting on just to, to add to your productivity comment, you know, the, the poster child for the year of efficiency was Meta, you know, and they their employees were down something like 22 percent, but profits and revenue up 25 percent. So it's like they. Cut all these people. They did more with less. That's sort of good for earnings, good for your productivity story. Um, and, and we'll see. It'd be interesting to see if these other tech companies follow right. Meta's footsteps to do more of the year of there, efficiency. There's a, there's a lot of soft, you know, costs everywhere. Um, you know, uh, and, and in many ways, we're the most efficient economy in the world. And we have a lot of soft costs. I mean. You, 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 you take a look at what, uh, you know, Elon Musk, uh, you know, did on, on Tesla, um, uh, you know, co- cost 30, 40% above, uh, below any other automakers until now BYD in China has begun to match their efficiency. But, um, there you, if you, if you know how, and it seems like Meta know how, I mean, it can, it can move forward, um, uh, this way. Now, of course, a lot of, you know, Meta has to do with, you know, developments in the past that they needed people that weren't generating revenue, you know, Vision Pro, all sorts of things like that. I mean, um, they, they I, also I, paid I, their first dividend. So they got some interesting news of a new tech payer. Right. Surprise. A dividend gets into the dividend. I, I think uh, the reaction was fairly good on that. I mean, the reaction on how much was the dividend and how much was Meta? I mean, you know, I mean, there's some people that won't want to pay a tax on the dividend, but uh, it does uh, it does join Apple as one of the big tech uh, dividend players, which is uh, certainly something that's excellent. 
be able to see if this puts more pressure on some of the things like Google and Alphabet and, and Amazon and the rest, the, the big non-payers still, if this is some of the change of tone as they, as they go out there. Um, well, Professor, I know, uh, you've got, uh, some travel today. Thanks for giving us some, some commentary to kick off the show. All right. And we'll talk to you next week. Thank you, Professor. Well, I'm now going to turn our conversation to our two guests for the hour. We have the RenMac, Renaissance Macro Research Team, Jeff DeGraff, who's CEO and Head of Market Strategy, and Neil Dutta, who is the Head of Economics, joining us for a deep dive on the markets, the economy. RenMac team, welcome to Behind the Markets. Thanks, Jeremy. It's it's great to be with you. Um, Neil, you heard a lot of the professor's comments on a big hot econ day. It's great to get sort of the econ and technical market strategy point of view. I love that we have both of you together. But Neil, um, just reacting to the professor's comments on the economy, did you find it as strange as he did? Or do you think there's an explainable thing for the hours worked phenomena that he's talking to? Well, uh, the Labor Department basically told us that weather was a big uh, factor behind uh, the decline in the work week. In fact, um, the report noted that, uh, I'll quote, unusually severe weather is more likely to have, uh, have an impact on average weekly hours than on employment. Um, and the impact of severe weather on hours estimates typically, but not always, results in a reduction in average weekly hours. So if you look at the number of people with a job, but that uh, weren't at work uh, due to bad weather, it was uh, almost 600,000 uh, last um last month, and that's uh, abnormally high. I mean, we haven't seen anything like that um, at any point in the last, you know, five years. Uh, So I think that definitely um, weighed on the data. But I think the important thing is that employment is growing. So if I had to pick just one number to look at, I would always put the most weight on the, uh, the headline payroll data. And that was very strong. And I think importantly, there were upward revisions to previous months, uh, which means that there was more momentum going into the year than we thought. Uh, but I think the bigger point is that the economy is fine. Um, and I think for corporate for corporate earnings, which is something I think uh, obviously the professors focused on, um, you know, all else equal, this number is good because it suggests that hours are slowing. We know the economy is fine. I mean, if you look at GDP growth over the last several quarters, it's been running over 3%. I mean, the Atlanta Fed is tracking reasonably high as well. So productivity is strong. That means unit labor costs are low. The economy is growing. So that's an environment where companies can make money. Corporate profits are growing. And that's supportive of the equity market. Um, so that, that that's sort of how I'm reading it. I think the bond market reaction is a little bit overdone, frankly. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, these things ebb and they flow. We'll get into the, all the market reactions with Jeff, I think, too. But in terms of where the, so is, is your view that the weather is, is, is most of the driver? So it'll come back next. You may expect it to bounce back to 34.3 next month. Is that part of your, the view there? Yeah, I would think so. I mean, at some point, the data has to reconcile, right? I mean, you can't go on forever with an economy growing the way it's growing and, total hours work not rising. I mean, total hours work have actually been down over the last several months uh, in the aggregate. So I just think that's an unsustainable situation. Um, so ultimately, hours will follow growth. And uh, if, you know, the weather weather conditions normalize uh, in February, then you should expect to see some rebound in the work week. And that should take some of the um, pressure off of hourly earnings. I mean, there is a mechanical effect there, right? If the work week is going down, that's going to mechanically push up hourly earnings. And um, when the work week is going up, uh, all else equal, I think that'll push earnings uh, lower. So uh, that, that's what I would expect. But again, as I, as I say, I mean, I think the bigger point is that um, despite, uh, you know, a five and a half percent funds rate, uh, we still have a, an economy that's growing reasonably well. And inflation, generally speaking, is moderated. Uh, so that's uh, I think that's a reasonably good backdrop. I, uh, for people who want to hear another long-form conversation with Neil, I just listened to him on the Compound and Friends, our friends Josh Brown, Michael Batnick's podcast, great conversation, points out that Neil was one of the very few extremely positive on the economy throughout last year when a lot of everybody was expecting recession, not Neil. So Neil, if you were to say as your recession indicators 
come like if if you were to say what would get you what what do you, when do you think it will show up do you have a if you had to push out like when what when when do you think this economy turns south uh i don't know when it turns south i mean the things that i'm looking at suggest that it might turn up before it turns south um so you know whether that's uh housing transactions right so housing activity appears to be picking up a little bit of steam here residential construction is looking like it's picking up. We're seeing building permits climbing for the single family sector. Um, when you look at inventories in the U.S. economy, they're just too low. I mean, if you have consumers spending money and uh, retailers not restocking inventories, that's not a sustainable situation. So I think uh, the restocking of inventories it will likely push up uh, manufacturing production. So those are very early uh, kind of cycle uh, areas of the economy. Um, but if I had to pick one indicator, uh, or two indicators, really. The time to get really concerned is when the growth in total labor income, so that's when you see jobs, hours, hourly earnings, when that is growing more slowly than the growth in inflation, then you should be concerned. When that's not happening, then you shouldn't be concerned. So, in other words, when real incomes are expanding, that's usually a good thing, and it's usually a good thing for the economy, given how uh, important consumption is. Uh, and when real incomes are contracting, then uh, the opposite tends to be true. But right now, if you look at even with this latest jobs number, over the last three months, uh, total income growth, what we formally call aggregate weekly payrolls, that's up about 5.2% over the last three months at an annual rate. And if you look at headline inflation over that period, it's barely running 2%. So that's a reasonably good backdrop uh, for uh, for consumption. You're talking about 3% of real income. And, you know, generally speaking, real income and real consumption are more or less running on top of each other. So that's a reasonably good first pass for what consumer spending is going to do, too. You talked a little bit about the sentiment and, and consumer of Michigan sentiment tending higher. Maybe this is good for Biden's prospects. There is a sense of like dissatisfaction with the economy. When you see these polls, people seem like dissatisfied. What do you think is driving some of the dissatisfaction that you see in some of the polls versus now you see sentiment actually starting to rise a little bit? But but any sense what, what that is? Well, I think there's there's multiple stages and multiple like avenues to deal with that question. I mean, remember, not long ago, people were talking about the vibes session, right? So this was the idea that, you know, consumers were very down on their luck and um, consumer sentiment numbers were very weak, despite the strong labor market and relatively strong economy. Um, but, you know, I, I thought that the weak consumer confidence data made a lot of sense um, because inflation was really high. The stock market was basically not doing anything. Um, and, uh, you know, if you think about consumer sentiment, it's basically a function of employment, inflation and wealth. And uh, if inflation is high and wealth is down, it makes sense for consumer sentiment not to be strong, irrespective of whatever's going on with the uh, with the labor market. So uh, I think that's one part of it. The fact that inflation's down and the stock market's breaking out to new highs, that's going to provide a tailwind for consumer sentiment, which is exactly what we've seen. Um, now, historically, if consumer sentiment is going up, um, that's usually a good sign for whoever the incumbent is in the White House. Um, so it's, you know, there, there may be a disconnect with polling right now, but that could also change if consumers continue to feel more confident. Now, I, I want to talk a little bit about the, the global economy, too. I, I heard your views that the ECB might have to come more than the Fed next year. Um, you know, I, I look at the dollar and maybe we'll get Jeff's views on what's happening in the currency markets and, and sort of dollar receiver markets. Can you tell us a little bit about what you see as the global environment, the ECB, some of these other central banks that you're watching the most closely? Well, I think the global economy is, is improving. Uh, you are seeing some evidence of that uh, already. Um, you know, as an example, uh, if you look at the data out of South Korea, which historically has been seen as sort of an early kind of read on the global supply chain, you know, this is an economy that specializes on a lot of these um, inputs that are used in the final production process for, you know, U.S. factory production, as an example. Um, those economies are picking up. Uh, exports in Taiwan are picking up. Um, so I think that's important because I think it's, it sort of sets the table for 
the uh, the near term outlook for uh, for global uh, factory production, which I think is going to be better. Um, you know, there's a lot of chatter about what's going on in China, but you know, China's growing very modestly. Um, I, I do think a lot of final assembly is already leaked out of China. Um, and in terms of Europe, yeah, I mean, I think they will have to. The ECB will will need to cut more than the Fed because the European economy is substantially weaker than the U.S. economy. So. Um, I think that puts a, uh, you know, I mean, they have a higher uh, number of, of, of rate cuts that they can deliver because their labor markets and their economy has been far more sluggish than, what's, that we, than what we've seen in the U.S. So um, to me, that's just really a, it's a growth differential story more than anything else. Now, now do you attribute that to the war, that their energy cost issues, um, that China's slow, and so, you know, let's say Germany, their manufacturing powers is tied to China growth. What what do you say is the the U.S. versus Europe um, differential? Well, I think it's all of those things. I mean, I think it's it's it is interesting because uh, I, I read a Bloomberg headline the other day because they just printed their uh, their their GDP numbers, I believe, and it. It read something like um, Italy, Greece, and Portugal uh, keep Europe from falling into recession. Now imagine reading that headline ten years ago. I mean, yes. um, you know, you know, before it was the uh, the periphery that was like sort of the um, the problem children of uh, of, uh, of Europe, and now they're the ones that are doing better. So I think that kind of speaks to Germany in particular and their manufacturing heavy and importantly they have a lot of cross-border border trade with china so the fact that china is so weak uh and the german economy is very much tied to what's going on in china uh, that hurts and at the same time and we've seen news headline after news headline talking about how the chinese are now the biggest sort of producers of autos well i mean what do you think the germans do so um you know they're kind of competing on the same playing field here so I think, uh, you know, a lot of this is about what's going on in, in Germany um, and uh, that right now they kind of are the sick man of Europe. Um, but, you know, I think, again, this is another I mean, so that that's part of it, too. So I think the China story, obviously, you know, Ukraine and, and what's going on. I mean, it's just sort of a gravity model, right? They're much closer to the action. So that that kind of hurts. Um, but also keep in mind that Europe is not as dynamic of an economy as the U.S. Uh, so their ability to bounce back. Uh, from shocks isn't as strong as, uh, as a, say, an economy like the United States. Let me pull in your colleague Jeff for a few moments. We're not going to be done with the economy stuff, but while we, you know, while we theorize on what's happening in the economy, we're talking with the Renmac Renaissance Macro Research Team. We've got Jeff DeGraff, who's CEO, head of market strategy; Neil Dutta, head of their economics part. Jeff, you heard Neil. His first comment was the bond market's overreacting to this data. And when you look at the from a, just a market perspective, how are you looking at the bond market and, and the reaction so far? Do you, do you agree with Neil's take on on uh, where we are? What's driving the bond market here for you? Yeah, look, you know, today's a today's a big one day uh, event, but I think it's within the context of what we've seen, which has been an improvement in the bond market. I.e., for us, improvement means lower yields. Um, we've seen some evidence of a trend transition uh, from higher yields to lower yields. Uh, the 50 days now through the 200 day on the 10 year. It's been uh, been that way on the 30 year now for a little over a week. Um, you know, I think we settle out somewhere uh, in a range, somewhere between call it 375 uh, and 325 for the back half of of this year. But you know, part of that call is based on what we're seeing globally too, right? And to Neil's point. Um, the European markets in particular look like they're they're softer and there's bigger top formations in those yields. Uh, and so usually you've got birds of a feather flocking together. Now, Japan is a completely different animal, right, with this this change in uh, in uh, quantitative easing and, and yield curve control. So I think you're going to see probably pers- more persistence of higher rates there. But there's a big gap between Japan and the rest of the world. So I would look at that as an outlier. But generally speaking, it looks to us like bonds have probably or bond yields have probably peaked uh, for the cycle. The question is, is how low do they go? How quickly do they go? Um, I think it you know it normalizes again somewhere around the in the in the mid threes three fifty with uh, with a tail event, but 
Um, I think what's interesting, you know, when we look at the totality, you've got equities at a new high today. Uh, Breadth is running about two to one. That's not a overwhelming number, but it's certainly a firm number, a, a good number. If you look at the mix of what's happening, consumer discretionary is there. So that's not some concern about the Fed's going to have to come in and really uh, tamp things down. I know that discretionary should react as obviously the jobs number is good, um, but financials are still in a good spot. Utilities are, are weaker. These defensive areas of the market uh, are weaker. And that's exactly what we want to see. If, if, the, if the market is concerned about the traditional path of a strong jobs, uh, strong jobs market, uh, impacting the Fed and sort of causing them to overstep, you're not going to see those types of reactions in the equity markets. And I think the other part that doesn't get as much play is what we're seeing out of gold and copper today, flat on the day, right? So you've got this big move in bond yields kind of freaking out, if you will. And at the same time, you've got Newmont down, I don't know, over 4% last I looked. Uh, the gold market just doesn't care, right? So they're not looking at this as some um, you know, some portal to this persistently high inflation. I think they are seeing it for what it is, which is this is a one-off number. The Fed's probably right. They're pushing things back from March into May. And you've got some adjustment there because of the timing and where people were in terms of the number of rate cuts they were anticipating. But I think all things considered within the package of what we're looking at, um, you're still going to end up with a Fed that's probably more benign as we go. Yields are going to be stable to slightly lower. Uh, and we still have growth in this economy, which is reflected in not only the breadth, uh, but also the, the actual levels of the S&P. So there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. In terms of the, I, I've been talking a lot about the correlation between stocks and bonds and how, you know, because of the sort of inflationary concern, bonds are not diversifying stocks like they used to. Or, but uh, the question is, how temporary or permanent is this spiking correlation? Will it go back down where you had bonds being the perfect hedge to stocks and, and bad things happening um, when inflation is a concern that's not? But is, do you have a view on that intermarket correlation dynamic? Well, yeah, I mean, it was, it's a it's a very important and good point, right? I mean, that was the disaster known as 2022. We had the worst we had the worst performance that we've seen in the 6040 portfolio because that correlation did in fact break down, right? Um, and so, you know, look, I think generally, and by generally, I mean probably 60, 65 percent of the time, uh, that's gonna work. It's those outliers that really hurt you. And you know, a lot of the work that we've done to to look at that does show that there there is a point where cash allocations and even commodity exposure makes a difference. The one thing that's interesting about commodities, now the timing of that becomes very important, but uh, the one thing that's interesting about commodities is when you have that break between uh, equities doing poorly and, uh, and bonds doing well, when that breaks down, usually commodities are the beneficiary of that breakdown. And so even though over the long run, if you look at kind of a 100-year rolling history, you're going to have commodities really give you some type of, of alpha in a portfolio, maybe 25, possibly 30% of the time. Uh, the issue is, is about 15 to 20% of the time when it does, it really does, right? So you can kind of let it be a drag on the portfolio uh, for an extended period of time because when it kicks in and helps, it helps to to the nth degree that really saves your bacon uh, on that year. So um, I, I think we're probably going back into something that's going to be more traditional, though I do think that we've broken the downtrend, the 40-plus-year downtrend that we had in long bond yields, right? So that that was really set before almost anybody today is, has, was in the business. I mean, I think one thing about people in the business today, uh, and look, I've been in the business 30 years, and I was a huge beneficiary of that uh, that trend in yields, but nobody's really seen an environment where you have persistently higher yields, right? Um, we broke the downtrend. We broke, broke the back of the downtrend in bond yields. Uh, and I think what that means historically is that you go from downtrend, not right into uptrend, but into something that's more range-bound, um, you know, probably with a, a high, let's call it 5%, and a low somewhere around 3 And then eventually, do you transition that trend into an uptrend? And that's what the danger will be. But I think that's potentially years down the road, probably when these deficits and some of these other, other issues start to take hold and, and germinate. But uh, we did break the back of the downtrend. So I think from a structural standpoint, just from a career perspective, we have to be uh, looking more towards uh, bonds in a range than in this sort of persistent 
downtrend in yields that, frankly, was able to give the valuations to equities some of their lofty levels. And I think that's all going to have to normalize as we go. And so that'll be the interesting part going forward is what does that impact have? If we don't have the persistently lower bond yields, then obviously the discount that we have to put on those earnings uh, ends up being um, more of of a ceiling for the equities at some level. It's not happening right now, but at some level that uh, that kicks in. Well, Neil, Neil, I want to come back to you on the economics view of what drives interest rates. And, and we, we often talk about it being a function of real rates should be a function of real economic growth and that sort of demographics, how many people are working, what is productivity. In, in your view, um, this 325 to 375 that Jeff's talking about, when you think about those drivers of long-term interest rates, real interest rates. I mean, what what do you see as the trend for productivity? Do you think the rebound we're getting recently back in sort of a little bit higher productivity market, is that sustainable? Is it going to accelerate? How, how do you think about it over the next five, seven years? Oh, you're on, you're on, uh, you're on mute there. Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, you know, I I, I do uh, I do wonder a little bit about that. Um, you know, productivity. Part of it is just let's let's watch the data, right, Jeremy? And um, you know, the data shows that labor productivity has been rising for several quarters at a reasonably solid pace. Uh, I hope that continues. Um, but productivity is notoriously difficult to forecast. Um, my own view is that productivity is probably overstated somewhat um, in recent quarters. I don't think the underlying rate of productivity is as strong as it's been, but I do also think that productivity is probably better than it was a year and a half ago when it was deeply, deeply negative. So if we're doing something like one and a half percent, you know, that's kind of in line with where we were pre-pandemic, and I, it remains to be seen whether we've kind of uh, levitated, levitated to a higher trend rate. Um, I think what's driving the growth in productivity at the moment is just, um, you know, there's a lot of chatter about AI and these sorts of things. But, I, I you know, my, in my experience, like, the, the, that, that's never the case. Like, it's never what your t- people are talking about today that's driving productivity today. So if it's AI, maybe that'll be the case in five years. But right now, I think it's largely just about people – staying put in their jobs longer. I mean, remember, a year and a half ago, people were quitting their jobs very frequently. I mean, the quits rate was through the roof. Uh, The labor markets were ridiculously tight, you know, red hot. And um, it's hard to establish labor productivity if people are switching jobs so frequently, right? I mean, how you have to keep the seat warm a little bit before you uh, can get useful in it. So uh, I think that that's, the fact that people are a little bit more comfortable and uh, satisfied in the jobs that they currently have, that allows, I think, labor productivity to pick up a little bit. So I think that's largely what's going on. There's also some compositional issues, I think, right? So as an example, you know, construction activities picked up, factory activities picked up a little bit. Uh, those tend to be sort of more capital intensive, higher productivity industries than services. So I think that's another so it's sort of a compositional issue around the economy. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, if productivity is going one and a half to two percent, then um, you know, a four percent nominal uh, rate as sort of a longer run uh, target. I mean, that makes sense, right? And 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 particularly, you know, when you, when we think about there's there's the Fed funds rate, and then there's the ten year rate, the term premium of what it should be where it is today. You got this sharply inverted yield curve. Cause many to be bearish on. Hey, we've every inverted yield curve predict recession. This one's not. Um, it is in, in your view, what's caused it to not predict it? And then, do you you know when when we think about where that when you said four percent there, were you talking about the long duration? Or were you talking about where Fed funds should be? I mean, I think that's they're roughly the same thing. I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I think that's to me that's a reasonable baseline for the ten-year yield over time. Um, the um, so you asked about the yield curve, and uh, you know the yield curve has been deeply inverted. That is true. I think part of the issue there is that um, yes, I mean the, an inverted yield curve, you know, typically precedes recession. I think what people miss is that it doesn't. Nec- I mean, what what the yield curve is telling you when it's inverted is that the Fed is expected to cut soon. That's what it's telling you. There are ways the Fed can be cutting rates without recession. 
right? Like you can have a scenario where they're recalibrating policy because inflation is slowing more than they expect. Kind of like what we have right now. So I think, you know, it's, it's important to know what the yield curve means. It doesn't necessarily mean recession. It means that the Fed is cutting. There could be times the Fed cuts without recession. Usually the Fed's cutting in recession, but there are times when they don't cut in recession. And um, so then you have to understand why, um, why they may not be, why they would cut and there wouldn't be recession. And it could just be kind of what we have, right? Which is, you know, you have a positive supply shock, inflation's kind of cooled off without much pain in the economy. Um, and that would justify some recalibration of policy because, you know, the Fed does want to get real rates, wants to keep real rates from getting too high. And so, uh, you know, they would just adjust policy modestly as a result. And if the, if the Fed is cutting, um, you know, let's say four times this year, that probably, um, you know, I mean, puts the yield curve positively sloped, uh, you know, from twos to tens. And that's that's OK. I mean, and, and so then you're, you're basically done at that point. So um, that's sort of how I think about it. I mean, I, I think it's sort of a. Um, people are kind of missing what, what the yield curve means. The, yield, the, I, the, pre the presence of an inverted yield curve does lead recession. That's because the Fed's typically cutting in recession. But what it really is telling you about is the Fed cutting, not recession. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, uh, you know, the thing I, I would say, Jeremy, just to add to that is um, what people missed in 2022 was what was happening to corporate spreads, right? I mean, if you were going into recession, you would expect or anticipate that corporate spread would start to widen. The cost of credit, the, the, the default risk, and all those mechanisms that go into it would start to rise. I think the bears missed that the entire year, which was they just looked at the yield curve and said, oh, my God, this is going to be a disaster. And it's just a, a matter of time before these things start to, to resonate uh, and filter into the corporate uh, the corporate side. And we didn't see it. And it was one of the things that kept us more bullish is like, look, you know, there's been so many changes, so many issues and stop and start economics with COVID that, you know, you, I don't think you can just use history as your guide to say this has to happen because there's really this interplay that takes place. And I think one of the things that the bears failed to uh, to really uh, justify, even when we pointed it out, they couldn't come up with a reason other than, well, it's just going to happen eventually, um, was that these corporate spreads were acting much better uh, than what you would otherwise anticipate if you're going into recession. Um, and, you know, historically what that means or implies is a big picture is that there's enough liquidity to keep the, the wheels of commerce greased and, and moving along, you know, sufficiently to prevent recession. You know, people have been talking about concentration in tech. And again, you've got the big tech companies on the tapes and, and NASDAQ winning again, small caps struggling. Now it's been a day for good economy data. Should small caps be participating more? What do you think is happening? Small caps versus large caps? What's going on there? Yeah, it's a it's an age old question, or it's become an age old question because usually, as uh, you know, risk uh, increases, you benefit from the small cap world, and that hasn't happened. I think there's a couple things. One, um, the product mix, if you will, the weightings in in the the large cap S and P 500 versus say the Russell 2, um, obviously skewed more from a capitalization perspective towards uh, technology in the S and P. Uh, interestingly enough, it doesn't have that same weight in small caps. It's uh, because of so many names. Uh, there's a lot of biotech names. There's a lot of banks uh, in the small cap world. And both those areas up until recently have really been under pressure and, and struggled, right? So much of 22, they were under pressure. Um, and even parts of 23, they're under pressure. So we've seen some normalization in both those sectors um in the fourth quarter and frankly a lot of those look like trend changes so i think that's good news that the trends are going to be there we just don't yet have the relative performance to keep up but if you look at you know just a, a chart an absolute chart of the the russell 2000 um it's a big base formation it broke out through 2000 so you know russell 2 through the two uh is important and uh, i think that's good news uh the question is is will it start to pick up and and outperform uh i actually am more bullish on banks here i know that they've had some weakness recently but again they look like trend changes and importantly one of the things that we saw in the fourth quarter was what we call escape velocity we saw enough breadth we saw 
um, this thrust, if you will, from the, the market and the participants that wasn't just about the MAG-7 or just about technology. It really was all-encompassing. At one point, we had 71% of the names in the S&P 500 make 20-day highs simultaneously. That's a huge number. That's the biggest number in real time that I've ever had in my career. And again, that's you know 30 years. So that big number historically, that might seem like, well, that's dangerous because so many names are making a 20-day high. It actually is a sign of, again, what we call escape velocity, momentum, or thrust that tends to have a long duration tail to it as far as one year out. So when you get those big numbers, generally you're in a bull market as confirmation of a bull market. Uh, and that that requires to have the, you know, that kind of level of thrust. It requires that small cap names are participating. So I think it's good news right now. I think the, the underperformance is just, a again, a mixed shift of what we have uh, about the differentials between large cap and small cap. But overall, the, the absolute charts are still bullish, and I think that's a, a decent place to be. There's a lot of opportunities. There are a lot of good charts in uh, those small cap uh, those small cap names, and probably because of that weighting is going to make it easier to outperform as a small cap manager of the index than it will be uh, the large cap because, you know, frankly, as you know, you're going to have to own Meta today, and you're going to have to own Amazon, and these names are up big and have huge capitalizations because otherwise you're just stuck. So... Uh, I, I think there's some opportunities there. Is it is there a difference in small cap banks versus large cap banks? So you could say the the large cap banks have benefited and feasted on the troubles of the small banks. Um, is and I've got another community banking questioning. Maybe that's pressuring small versus large banks again. Do you do you think the small caps banks can break out too, or is it just the large banks? Well, they need to break the downtrend line. So the the uh, carry index and some of those other bank indexes have done most of the work. I think, you know, if I had to letter grade them, I'd call them Bs, maybe B pluses. But the large banks uh, certainly do look better. The JP Morgans of the world, Citigroup broke out, uh, Wells Fargo breaking out. So those are, you know, those are, are better, more mature uh, trends. Obviously, they have the benefit of SIFI designations as well. So that's a kind of a whole different uh, different ball game. But uh, what I'm most impressed by in financials, frankly, and, and if we rank order financials, I'm sorry, sectors, financials actually end up being the top in terms of the strongest trends, quantitatively, the strongest trends within the market. So that's insurance, that's reinsurance, that's the uh, private equity names like Apollo, KKR, um, that is the Goldman's of the world. You know, there, there it is. It is across the board that financials uh, are are improving and actually look good. So uh, that's one of the more encouraging signs that we're seeing after years of underperformance. Um, they're kind of getting some uh, some bit of a tailwind here uh, and seem to be uh, seem to be benefiting. And and frankly, at this part of our market cycle, as we look at it. Um, we would expect improvement both in financials and in healthcare. So uh, the puck is kind of going in that direction for us already. Well, I want to get to the the healthcare in a second, but Neil, any on the bank's view and and the sort of latest headlines about the the commercial real estate? Do you you know you heard this professor's comments kick off the show? Do you any want to agree disagree? You think the lending issues from these banks going to become more of an issue for the economy? Do you think commercial real estate becomes an, a, an issue for any of them? I mean, it clearly is an issue for a lot of them, um, particularly the small banks, regional banks. Um, I think it's been widely known that they have uh, a lot of commercial uh, commercial real estate exposure. Um, but I think more broadly, I mean, when I look at the banking system, um, you know, a lot of these banks, particularly the big banks, um, you know, they're provisioning for losses with an un- of an unemployment rate going up to 5% or so. I mean, um, they're, they're thinking that the unemployment rate is going to rise a lot more than it likely will. And so you have to ask yourself what happens, you know, considering they've built up these buffers and you don't get the spike in unemployment that they're anticipating, what will they end up doing? And my suspicion is is that they'll probably have to loosen their lending standards a little bit, um, particularly the larger banks. And so that could probably, um, you know, provide a modest push uh, to the economy this year. Um, You know, lending standards have been tight. Bank lending has been weak. Um, so I think that probably changes a little bit this year. Um, but I think the bigger story is that bank lending isn't the big driver of economic activity that so many people seem to think it is. I mean, if you look at bank loans as a share of GDP, it's basically been flat since 2016. So what's going on? It's more of an income-driven economy than a credit-driven economy. That's, that's, that's I think, what people, uh, people are missing. And did that change at some point? 
Was that did, where, where was there a shift in that income versus credit economy in, in your view? Well, as I said, I mean it's been flat since 2016, but I, I think um, I think COVID changed a lot of it, a lot of that dynamic because um, you know people saw their income swell uh, because of all the um, the government uh, stimulus that they that they received. So some and their balance COVID. sheets were in a much better place um, at the end of COVID than they were. Uh, I mean, they were pretty good before COVID too, but uh, it kind of supercharged things for the household sector. Yeah. Interesting stuff there. Jeff, when when you, you mentioned of the sectors you banks were doing, but then healthcare, and I, I've seen one of your calls for this year has been biotech. If, if you were to talk about the setup in biotech, give us your thesis. Is uh, what, What's the case? Well, I mean, if you're going to have first, let's start um, with the kind of fundamental overlay. If you're going to end up uh, on a macro perspective, if you're going to end up with yields having peaked out, right, and with a downward trajectory, even if they don't collapse, but they're, you know, more normalizing in that mid threes, as we mentioned, then uh, that move from five to three just helps long duration assets, right? And the biotech is about as as long duration as you can get. You uh, raise a bunch of money and hope you can, you know, cure cancer. That's, uh, you know, fingers crossed. Um, So you've got that tailwind that's, that's helpful. Um, part of the work that we do also looks at just what are the risk-adjusted returns in an industry group or a sector historically, and you know where do those shake out? And what we saw with biotech um, was that the risk-adjusted returns over the last three years were absolutely abysmal. I mean, to the point where unless they were really going to go to zero, which some of them probably do, but as a group, as a whole, as a as an industry um, sub sub industry, um, it's very unlikely that that happens. And so. When you get that type of disdain uh, that relates from those negative returns, it's usually the point where we start to sniff around and start turning over rocks. So I like the underperformance that we had. And then with that, we started to see sentiment. And we judge sentiment a lot of different ways. But one of our favorite is looking at uh, what's happening to, to flows within the ETF sectors. And so in biotech ETFs, we're seeing massive amount of outflows. Um, and that was starting to happen as the relative performance was actually um, was actually stabilizing. And so what you're seeing is a give up, right? People are just capitulating. They're, they've had it. They're moving on. And yet they're unable to really drive the industry group lower. So we've got massive negative returns. We've got this tailwind from, you know, what we think is a, uh, a better macro outlook for long duration assets. We've got the sentiment set up and now we're starting to see the relative performance kick in. So that from a technical nutshell is how we think about the world. Um, you know, whether that ends up being uh, some people have told me that they, they believe it's an AI issue, which is the sequencing and all these things that require just so much computing power are going to get better and better with AI helping to to un, unlock and, uh, and you know, frankly, sniff out uh, some patterns and, and you know, some uh, uh, important data that might be overlooked if you don't have that, that capability. I'm not sure exactly what the fundamental driver is going to be from company to company, but I think the overall setup – uh, is actually pretty bullish. So I like finding things that are responding well uh, to otherwise bad news, have had terrible returns, and are now starting to uh, uh, to uh, to break out. Well, I'll give people a tease on a book coming out. I'm, I got a preview of, of Jamie Metzl's new book called Super Convergence uh, coming out in June, and it's exactly the thesis of what you just said. It's sort of all these AI themes going to help accelerate the innovation on biotech. So uh, he shares that. It's a it's a very well, interesting. Get... Over podcast hosting and uh, and equity research, we're fine. Yes, we'll. Uh, I could get you a preview of the book. Um, the um, if if we talked with Neil a little bit about global macro on on sort of the U.S. versus the outside the U.S. U.S. has just been the only place to be for 15 years. Now, you know, the, the hot topic, we talked a little bit about China weighing on these others. People have been loving to try to find a bottom in China. Do you, do you think China gets a double or does it ever find a bottom here? Can it can it get support? You see the money rotating outside of China to these other places. What what? How are you looking at international markets, particularly China versus some of these other places that are seeing some beneficiaries of the rotation out of China? Yeah, two things there. I mean, one of my favorite words in this business, uh, and it just takes you know the battle scars to to learn about that is uninvestable, right? When I when when people talk about something that's uninvestable, uh, that's always kind of music to my ears because it just means that you know what it's just impossible to 
to kind of handicap it. And usually people shoot first and ask questions later, right? So that means they're gone if it, if it's uninvestable. Um, and I've started to hear that about about China over the last six months. It's just uninvestable. There's you know nothing you can do there. Um, so I like that that kind of sentiment uh, that sentiment setup. Without question, the charts are still terrible. The downtrends are intact. There's nothing there that really stands out to us from a from a technical perspective. However, um, that same that same risk adjusted return metric that I mentioned for biotech uh, is also for both Hong Kong and China uh, is also in this bottom percentile. Basically, they're the bottom second percentile of historic risk-adjusted returns versus the ACWI, which is the, the global world index. Um, so in other words, if, if you're an investor in China, your returns relative to the benchmark are in the bottom 2% once you adjust for the amount of pain versus risk that you've had to take there. That's usually a point where things are are so bad that they become good. Uh, again, we wait for, for some type of turn. We wait for some type of relative performance. But if there's a market or a region in 2024 that we're looking at as a contrarian idea where people aren't, where there might be some opportunity because things are so bad that they might be good, uh, it's certainly the, that Asian region, which would be uh, specifically China and, and Hong Kong. One, uh, one note, I would say, um, again, back to the ETF flows, not quite as extreme as we'd like to see. So there might be a little bit more sentiment to ring out of there. But um, certainly, I think it's something that you want to keep your ears to the ground for in 2024 as an opportunity for uh, for a big bottom. And let's be honest, I mean, it's the one thing that might actually end up being uh, a huge kicker for the global economy, because people have kind of written China off for uh, 2024, maybe even beyond. Uh, if somehow they can get this to to kick in uh, and be a little stronger, particularly if it's sustainable, not just uh, you know government waving the magic wand, um, that could be an upside surprise for global markets uh, and the global economy as uh, we look at 2024. Well, so if people liked what they heard today, they they heard Neil on the economics, they heard Jeff on the market strategy. Jeff, just tell people what they could be looking for. How who should be thinking about Renaissance Macro as a client? Who tell them a little bit more about your services, what you're offering, and and how they can find you get get access to what you what you guys do. Yeah, Jeremy, thank you. Well. Uh, obviously, we have a website, uh, renmacaccess.com is for our high net worth uh, uh, non-institutional investors. Institutional investors uh, can uh, can go to renmac.com. We have a Twitter handle, renmacllc, uh, at uh, renmacllc, where we uh, usually are posting things uh, uh, that we find interesting and timely. Uh, and then we have a podcast, actually, that we do every Friday, and uh, it comes out about noon. Uh, for non-subscribers, it comes out Saturday mornings. Uh, but it gives us um, an opportunity to, to to put our views out there on how we're thinking about the world and what happened in the week ahead and uh, really digest some of the data and some of the charts that are, are of interest. So we have an institutional product, um, and we have a, a high net worth product and uh, a podcast for everybody. Well, I appreciate you guys coming on. Shout to both of you, Neil. Congrats on being one of the few great bulls last year on the economy. Jeff, great to meet you and, and hear all your market views. You've been listening to Behind the Markets. You can check us out on our Behind the Markets podcast. Chris in the studio, thanks for helping us. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.